0: See, it's been a—it's been a horrible tragedy historically that the people that are associated with Marxism are are Fidel Castro, Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin, Ho Chi Minh, and Pol Pot.
1: And none of it's Marx. (laughs) And none of it's Marx. Right. Hey, I'm back. Welcome to Brian Talks to Humans, a people's podcast about everyday people. I know it's been kind of a long break, uh, three months, didn't really mean for it to turn into that. had some stuff going on, I'll give you the short version. Pretty bad funk, pretty bad depression in the middle of the winter from about, you know, uh, mid-December or so to late January, mid-February. I had some financial troubles, some of which was exacerbated by some of my own bad decisions. Everything was just kind of feeding off each other, uh, and it, it was a it was a tough go. And I really didn't have much motivation to do anything, including this, which is you know a shame because I really do like doing this. It's a even if two people are listening, it's a fun hobby for for me to do. I did finally settle the uh, lawsuit related to the ankle. Got a few dollars to rub together. Uh, your boy is debt free and is actually maybe going to be a homeowner sooner rather than later. So that's some good news. So, in today's episode, I talk to my friend Rory. Uh, we go all over the place uh talking about politics and history and that sort of thing, and some of it is essentially the the unit on imperialism and interventionism that i that I teach in my u s two classes. But we also get into uh some other experiences when he was younger and his experiences with recovery Now, to those of our friends who are in recovery who are listening, you know there's a a tradition in 12-step recovery that speaks to um, maintaining anonymity in public forums like radio and films and press. You know, and people have taken that to also mean things like the internet and podcasts and that sort of thing. We do mention, however, the name of a fellowship that we're a part of. And I decided to leave it in there. I decided that, that it was okay I really don't think it violates tradition. Neither of us are speaking for the fellowship. We're not trying to do public relations uh, by promotion rather than attraction. If anything, you know, maybe even perhaps somebody out there hears us speak and figures we're two amazing cats and we're part of this so they could be part of it too and not be boring and miserable and that sort of thing. But if you disagree, I apologize. You know, feel free to Tune out and not listen anymore, but we're gonna go ahead and and keep that name in. One more note on the audio. So I haven't been, I've been out of practice and I hooked everything up right. I put all the inputs in right. I had the computer um you know detecting all the inputs right. And I think what happened was either one of us was talking into the back of a mic because I screwed up, or I didn't switch the input on the right way in the audio software and we were talking into the built-in mic on the laptop. Either way, the sound isn't great, and I apologize. Um, Not the way that I wanted to start my first episode back after such a long break. But I still think it turned out fine, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Rory. folks after about a almost three month hiatus we're back um brian talks to humans we're in hq tiny apartment cramped small space two dogs although that might change soon and today's human is rory rory i want to thank you for uh, coming by and taking time to do this i've been meaning to do this with you for like a year yeah i appreciate we, it uh, Well, so i don't know if
0: i fit the human Uh, moniker. (laughs) Uh, And and why is that? (laughs) No, I don't know. I just, it's just funny, like, to think about, like, uh, sometimes I feel like I don't, I don't fit in with human society, so I guess that's
1: more the, uh... So feeling different then? Sure, go figure. When do you think that started? I don't know, uh, probably
0: when I was, uh, younger, uh, when I was in fourth grade, probably, is when I started, because, uh... We're in Montclair, and I, even though I grew up in Nutley, it's the town over in New Jersey. Uh, you know, I went to grammar school in Montclair, and it's because uh, I started suffering from depression at a young age, like mm-hmm. around fourth grade. I didn't know that's what it was until later in life.
1: But yeah, I was gonna say when I mean you're not too much younger than me. When folks our age were were younger, there wasn't a whole lot of diagnosis of that going on for people that age. Right? No, I just changed schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, do, you, do you think um, that was something like they, they talk now about? Uh, Jim was telling me uh, that when we, when we uh, medicate folks, you know, we're, we're only looking at like one of the three prongs that go into some of it's like environmental, some of it's genetic. So is there anything that you think triggered it or brought it on? Or it was just.
0: Yeah, I was, uh, I was tracked into a lower, I went to a public school where they had tracking Mm -hmm. and I was tracked into a lower level of classes. Um, So when I was in third grade, uh, they had three different teachers. Um, one was like a high level course. One was a medium, one was a low. And then, uh, in fourth grade, they only had two teachers. So there was only high and low. Mm -hmm. And I was aware that I was placed into the low classes, you know, the low level classes. So it was like, uh, I think that affected me in in many ways, you know, shaped my life in in many ways, that kind of event. And so what I did is I stopped doing homework.
1: Yeah.
0: That was, that was my response to it. And when you're nine and you're getting, and you're failing like health. Because you're not doing the homework assignments, you know. And I didn't have parents that, like, checked my homework. Mm-hmm. They just let me do whatever I wanted,
1: you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, it's like uh, when depressed people don't check their mail. Yeah, yeah. Or answer your phone so yeah, or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, actually, I don't really answer my
0: That's <laughs> probably well, a good, again, policy. <laughs> <depression>. good
1: policy. Good <laughs> policy. Well, you don't know. It could be bill collectors. That's why I don't answer. But I, I think anybody who doesn't text first before they call is a terrorist. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think that nowadays. See, I was kind of late to the smartphone game. I didn't get a smartphone until like two... I can I don't even remember because it's all like the, the seven years of my life are like a big blur. But probably the iPhone 5S was the first smartphone I had. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. Mm-hmm. So whenever that came out, um, 2012,
1: mm-hmm.
0: something like that. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, I didn't know what I was missing out on.
1: Because <laughs> having a smartphone took my like self-destructive behaviors to a whole nother level well before we get to to that um let's talk a little bit more you said you had parents who didn't check your homework and stuff like that what what was young rory like you know way before i met him growing up in nutley well let's see i i was a big dukakis
0: supporter in 88 (laughs) at the age of five and uh you know so uh no i was i guess i was always into um Let's see, like before before let's say before the depression, what was I like? I was like a normal, happy person, child, you know what I mean? Like I didn't have worries and stuff like that. And it was probably around then that like things started getting
1: you know, around nine,
0: ten. You know, I got into then I, I started going to private school in Montclair and things changed. Because what what I found the difference between public school and private school in my experience was was that the private? The kids in the Catholic school in Montclair were more culturally evolved than the kids that I was going to school with in public school. So, okay. like the kids in public school in Nutley listened to like MC Hammer and New Kids on the Block. And Then I go to this this private school and I'm introduced to like Nirvana and Nine Inch Nails and Metallica, and that's what these kids were listening mm, to. Yeah, and it was a totally different. Like it was a shock to the system. Mm-hmm. Like around nine, ten, ten years old. Mm-hmm. And then Kurt Cobain committed suicide nineteen ninety four and I was I was in fifth grade. Mm-hmm. And I was actually in England um with my parents on vacation. And I remember when it came on the radio that Kirk Cobain had committed suicide. I was pulling out of the uh the hotel and it was on the British radio that he had they died. And uh you know so anyway I got really into grunge rock and all that stuff at yeah. that time. And uh you know I think it always like fascinated me personally about Kirk Cobain. I think looking back on it, it was like I looked at him like he was a rich, famous rock star. Like, what more could you want in life? Mm-hmm. And he was still an unhappy person. Mm-hmm. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I think that influenced me at a young age, you know? Yeah.
1: Now, I, I know you as someone who's interested in, in the class question and in inequality and, and how yeah. that drives, you know, basically everything. You went to... High school, after St. Catherine's, you went to private high school. Yeah, I went to
0: Seton Hall Prep in West Orange. And for all the people in Jersey that listen to this. (laughs) For the two people. Yeah, right. (laughs) the two people listen to it. I hope they're from this part of New Jersey so they have any idea what these places are. Yeah, so that's when I really started getting into uh, left-wing, like, socialist politics. Mm -hmm. Was in in high school around uh, 15, 16.
1: And it was because I met a guy who we both know. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know, should I say his name or is that right?
0: or? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, you would maybe I'll say TJ, yeah, 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 yeah. He
0: taught a class called uh, Alternate Voices, okay, and that was the title of the course. And it was an elective, so I couldn't take it until I was a junior. And he was the only African American teacher at a prestigious kind of um, Catholic high school, and all boys Catholic high school, so it was interesting. And he was saying, you know, uh, the, the way he promoted the, the course was like, oh, we 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 read books that you don't normally read, <laughs> he would say that you don't normally come across. And, of course, it was really like a front, an educational front for his um, organ- his political organization, which was like Pan-African Socialism.
1: Well, isn't, there, isn't there a word that he had that means you, right? Yuhuru, oh, okay, which is yeah. Swahili for freedom. Okay.
0: So the, the rap group Dead Prez, mm-hmm. you ever heard of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, uh, they were part of Yuhuru, which okay. was a Pan-African Socialist group. And, uh, his course was really about, so long story short for people who don't know anything about pan-African socialism, because why would you? <laughs> it's kind of a minority issue, but, uh, you know, uh, basically it was, um, you, we learned a lot about the Black Panther Party, uh, and the intel and the, the, new left, it was an introduction into the new left of the 1960s and 70s, and what was interesting about it to me was the extent that the American state, namely the FBI, went to kind of destroy these organizations you know, like the Black Panther
1: Party. The co The Counterintelligence it, Program, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hoover. Uh-huh. Actually, that's one of the things that I try to teach about, too, because, like, when, when it comes to, you know, black history, you know, they've, they've gotten probably the wrong version, but they've gotten a lot of Rosa and Martin and that sort of stuff. And so I try to add in things that maybe they wouldn't have heard too much about
0: you know well i mean i think a lot of it for me was like we read a book well i was influenced at that time very much by mumi abu jamal's book now again like my political kind of education was evolving at this point but um it's what and i wouldn't i wouldn't defend maybe their those pan-african socialist ideas today um but because i i view them as nationalistic but um at that time, it did a lot to, that course did a lot to shatter a lot of illusions that I had about American politics and American history. We, we were, for instance, the first book we read was The People's History of the, of the United States by Howard Zinn. So we were interested in that whole stuff. AKA know, that, the Bible for high school teachers. Right, 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 right. Like, well, there's another book called, like, The Lies My Teacher Told Me, right? Yeah, yeah. It would be another example. We yeah. didn't read that, but yeah. that's like a different wave. And so the whole idea here was, was that, you know, I was really... Um, like a liberal Democrat, like I would have been a supporter of Bill Clinton, was in office at this time, and um, this was right before Bush Gore,
1: mm-hmm. but like but chronologically, you know, politically. So, um, what year did you graduate high school? I graduated in 2001. Okay, so. So then, so then, uh, schooler and the Supreme Court case was my like senior year. It happened when you were okay. Yeah, yeah. And
0: then September 11th is my second week in college.
1: Okay. So a lot of like cool. seminal
0: events in I was very young when that happened.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask, like, how did those two? I, mean, I was very aware shape your evolving. You know. Well, I was a Nader supporter. Yeah. At that time, well, I
0: and it wasn't so much that I was this Nader supporter. It was just like I was against the establishment candidates mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, if there was a Bernie Sanders. In 2001, I guess Nader was the closest thing to Bernie Sanders in 2001. And really, I just think it was more of like a protest mode. You know, like mm-hmm. my support for bourgeois politicians is more out of protest than it is out of anything else. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not that I actually think that Ralph Nader would have, like, looking back on it, like he was the answer. Or that, you know, that Bernie Sanders is the solution today. It's just that, um, you know, they represent something um, different, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
1: voted Nader. I think ninety six and two thousand. Right,
0: right, right. I still get shit
1: for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then my dad was really more of a you know like
0: a, like a mainstream
1: Democrat at that time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was you know evolving too at that point. You know, I I I remember, you know, Bush Gore and nine eleven. You know, being yeah, you know, I was a I was a student teacher, uh, when nine eleven happened, and I remember it really. You know, I was, I was lucky to have a, a mentor teacher that had a. Yeah, it would probably be Lib Dem, you know, like a, a, a good critique of, you know, what was going on, and we sort of reformed a, a unit on imperialism right? to sort of teach them, like, some interventions that we've done, or the U.S. has done, yeah. it, at least, uh, and then how that, like, was background to some of the, you know, so, and, and it was really cool, like, because other people, you know, probably had some very reactionary responses to it. Well,
0: things, I mean, I think the important thing to note, I mean, at least in, in terms of my own uh in impression of what's happened the last 20 years is that things that were not, you were not able to talk about 20 years ago are now kind of mainstream topics. So, okay. as. Oh, like, uh, for instance, the American intervention in Iran in 1950s, which I think you just kind of referenced, when they overthrew Mosaddegh in 1954, 53. Yeah, Um, and when they did that, you know, there's a great book called All the Shah's Men about that, but you know, you could, now now they they mention that on the news.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Like, on MSNBC, it gets mentioned. Like, back when I was a kid, like, you didn't, no one talked about that type of stuff, right? It was under the covers, and, 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 and the United States is, history of overthrowing governments. Now with, with Sanders, you know, you hear a lot more about Allende in Chile,
1: because
0: mm. Sanders is, is a lot similar to, and the, I think things are a lot like uh, Chile in the early 1970s in mm. the United States, mm. or, or or right around this before the Spanish Civil War. I mean, Chomsky really says that our, our history right now in America is a lot very similar to the Spanish Civil War mm-hmm. um, in 1930s. How, how so? Um, Well, I think, you know, at least in Chile, I think that, you know, the thing with Allende was that Allende ran democratically as a Marxist, whatever that means. I don't know if he was a Marxist, but he claimed to be one. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he was democratically elected, but it was very close. Like, that was a very narrow election. So he didn't have overwhelming popular support when he came into power. So the military and the reactionary forces in Chile at that time were able to make the argument that he wasn't really, that the population didn't really want him. You see what I mean? And it's for me, it's similar now to to that in the sense that um, that's the same argument they're going to make about Sanders if Sanders wins without mm-hmm. overwhelming popular support. They're mm-hmm. already doing it, yeah, right? Yeah. They're already saying, well, the population doesn't... And so so Allende, a lot like Sanders, was a genuine... He wasn't really a Marxist. He was just a genuine social reformer, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And uh, that used the term Marxist because it meant something in Latin America in 1970, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... <laughs> (laughs) You know, I think that in in terms of the Spanish Civil War, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Orwell's book, Homage to Catalonia. That's really my only knowledge of the Spanish Civil War is that and what Trotsky has written about the Spanish Civil War. But uh, the anarchist, it was really an anarchist, was represented the revolutionary left then, an anarchist uh, party. But, you know, you had, like, basically there was an election, and then, oh, no, this is what happened. Franco, uh, general, like, decided to break off and, like, fight against the republic. He was in Africa. I think, and he just like took his army and said, "I'm going to invade Madrid." And then when that happened, Barcelona went revolutionary, and they basically said, "We're we're separating from Fran- from Spain." And then there was a war between the loyalists to Franco and the revolutionaries in and the Republic in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. The Republic being made up of a bunch of different groups.
1: Yeah, and in that in that war, uh, we didn't get involved against the fascists. Volunteers from the Western democracies went there in the international. And that's brigades. who Orwell and was. Who Orwell, Orwell was. Yeah. He was a member
0: of like one of the international brigades.
1: Yeah. So how is that similar to what's going on now?
0: Well, I think the fascism. I mean, on the right, you know, I think what's going on is that this, this society is being polarized. So, like, whether whether Bernie Sanders succeeds or not, that twenty five percent of the electorate that supports him, they're not going anywhere.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and, and does anyone think that if he fails to reform capitalism, if that if that proves to be not possible? you think those people are going to go to the right or go to the center? No, they're going to end up going further to the left. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with Trump supporters, Trump supporters are going to lurch to the right. They're not going to stay in the center. So I think Chomsky's point about that is, is that the conditions of, you know, like kind of the the stakes are very high. Like it was before the, uh, the Spanish
1: war. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned Orwell.
0: So, yeah. So I guess like just in my own, like college, like just just to, trace my political education. Yeah, yeah, that's
1: what I'm trying to do,
0: yeah. Yeah, um, so, like, September 11th is my second week in college, mm-hmm. all right, and I'm against the war, I'm against the invasion of Afghanistan. Interesting, today, a deal was signed to end the war, to begin the process of ending the war in Afghanistan. Well, so I was against that war in 2001. <laughs> <laughs> before it was cool. Yeah, so we needed 20 years of a bloodletting to, uh, yeah. before we got to the end of the Yeah, people
1: culture. over there weren't even born we're in 11th. Right,
0: right, right. You know, I opposed that and all that stuff. And then when I was a sophomore, I took a course called Revolutionary Social Movements, which was about every revolutionary movement in the world, from the Russian Revolution in 1917 to the fall of the Soviet Union and everything in between.
1: Mm -hmm. I learned a lot about Latin
0: American politics. That's when I took an interest in guerrilla movements in Latin America Mm -hmm. and the Cuban Revolution and all that stuff. And then when I was a junior, the next year, I took a, a political theory course on Marxism specifically, mm-hmm. that was taught by an anarchist, actually, a Guatemalan-Iranian anarchist. Mm. and uh,
1: Two countries we overthrew <laughs> in 53 and
0: 54. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> right, back, right, back back. right back to back. Arbenz in, uh, in, in Guatemala. So, yeah, you know, I think that um, that was really kind of brings me up to speed. I mean, I think when I... T- and then, then I went to graduate school and I studied under uh, a Latin American sci- political scientist and uh, kind of Trotskyist, so...
1: And and what specifically about Latin America do you think interested you, or is it just the U.S. has been intervening there that so was, much? That was specifically what it was.
0: Like, so if you want to know about Americans, so if anyone is interested in the crimes of the American state, you want to know how to look at uh, in you know U.S. relations in Latin America historically.
1: You know, what I read the other day I was doing some research on on stuff, and uh, Galliano um, Eduardo Galliano disowned or whatever, dis- whatever said. I, I, uh, Open veins of Latin America, the book he wrote. Okay, I never read it. Yeah, um, was like, uh, he's like, oh, I tried to do a treatise on political economy, but I wasn't well-trained enough and, you know, uh, I failed and this sort of thing. And, like, that thing's been, like, a left Latin America, like, like Bible. Yeah, for, like, a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Chavez gave it to Obama. <laughs> he said he needs to do some reading about this. Yeah, I, the funny yeah. thing is, I've never heard of it and I, I, I
0: never read that book. But, uh, yeah, so I think that you know, all that stuff. So, yeah, basically, if, if anyone thinks that the United States supports democracy uh, abroad, just look at the history of the United States had during the Cold War in Latin America. Forget about going all the way back to, like, gunboat diplomacy and all that shit. I'm just talking about in the relevant period, like 1948 up, because they had the good neighbor policy under, uh, under uh, Roosevelt, which kind of cooled things off. But the second that the Cold War started... Boom. Second mm-hmm. world, a couple of years after World War II was over, the United States went back to doing exactly what it had been doing in Latin America. And it makes sense because of proximity geographically. you mm-hmm. know. I mean? Sure. And there was a lot of business interests, the main point, right? Yeah. Business interests in Latin America. Which always
1: drives it, yeah. So uh, you mentioned um, guerrilla movements and in the, in the Cuban Revolution. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. How did that affect your political outlook and how is your political outlook different now? Well, I mean, I, I just kind of fell for Fidel Castro.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, as like a charismatic kind of leader, uh, when this is like when I was nineteen, 20 years old, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and even though so I was kind of the problem that was being worked out here was that you know Castro and what happened in Cuba was not a revolutionary, not a uh, marxist revolutionary kind of thing. Um, it was a nationalistic thing. Now, I didn't understand that at that time, but so what was in conflict was that I'm um, studying Marxism. Uh, at one time, and then I'm thinking that Castro was really a revolutionary mm-hmm. in the Marxist sense of the word, and you know, and and he wasn't, and that was in graduate school where I really worked out all those conflicts, and mm-hmm. I you know I wouldn't you know I wouldn't defend the Cuban Revolution today. And by the way, I think it was a tragic error of Bernie Sanders to be talking about Fidel Castro when he has nothing in common with him. Mm-hmm. You know, don't you know don't that's not yeah you know, you, you're either. You, pick, you know, Bernie's got to pick a lane. Like, Either you're a reformer or you're a revolutionary. You can't be both, right? And um, he seems to want to be both, all mm-hmm. things to all people. And I think he's, he's clearly a social reformer. He should stick to that lane and not get into this. But, yeah, so, um, you know, the Cuban Revolution uh, was deeply influential on me. Namely, you know, again, like a lot of things, like, I was just kind of horrified by the things that the American government had done in Latin America.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And
0: um, the Cuban Revolution was the beginning of all that stuff. Because it, during the Cold War, because it freaked out people, and you know the power structure in the United States for, was freaking out about Castro because they were afraid of it spreading across mm-hmm. Latin America, mm-hmm. which is what, what Castro's intention was to a certain extent—to to spread Cuban-style whatever socialism, if you want to call it that—I uh, would not probably not a good word—Cuban-style nationalism across um, you know Latin America more broadly, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, and, it's, and in my opinion, it's actually a tragedy that Castro and Che Guevara are kind of remembered as the great revolutionaries of the you know of the twentieth century. You know, and then Lenin and Trotsky are not really spoken about, you know, by people on the left. So
1: is is that because um, um, theirs was more recent and maybe you know, and that one seemed, the Lenin and Trotsky one seems sort of tucked away in almost ancient history in the early nineteen hundreds?
0: I, I mean what I think and maybe this is cynical, but uh, I think that it's easier to understand Guevara and Castro and it's harder to understand Marxism. Okay. And and Trotsky and Lenin. So I think that it takes, there's a difference between radicalism and socialism, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so I wouldn't consider myself a radical. Like, I would reject that term. But I think that a lot of people that, that, I think the the type of person that backs a Guevara or backs a Castro is really a radical more than they are um, a revolutionary. I don't think those are the same things. And um, and I think that also they tend to be middle class or upper middle class people tend to to back Castro uh, and the Cuban Revolution tend to come from a certain social layer, namely not the working class. Uh, but
1: well, yeah, when I when I read critiques of the of the Cuban Revolution, it, it's a, a lot of the idea that it was top down and didn't like include the people who they supposedly were representing in like the planning and stuff like that, and the fact that it spoke a lot to. You know, people in the rural areas, but they didn't address the you know. Well, his army came the from the industrial and yeah, industrial cities. They didn't really address that much. Yeah, and the truth yeah. about Fidel Castro, the dark truth about Fidel
0: Castro, is not dark truth, but the reality of his history was is that before he was um, Fidel, he was he was a social reformer in Cuban politics. Mm-hmm. So he ran in an election. I don't know what year. Uh, again, this is when they allowed so. Cuba was always going through this kind of, like, they would let elections happen, then they would stop them, and back and forth, right? Depending on whether it was convenient for, a good for yeah, well, the Platt <laughs> Amendment, the Platt <laughs> Amendment after yeah, the, Spanish yeah. the, war, <laughs> the Spanish-American War, allowed the United States to basically veto whatever happened in Latin right, in Cuba. So uh, Castro, you know, ran for something called the Orthodoxo Party, which was like Christian Socialist Party kind of in Latin America, and he ran as a social reformer, and then he won, and uh, he won the election. This was just for Congress in Cuba. And then what happened was, is Fidelio Batista canceled the elections and said, like, well, we can't have these elections. So I need to stay in power. And then Castro got his friends together and they got a bunch of guns and they attacked a military installation, right? And that was the beginning of like what well, we had come to understand to be the Cuban Revolution.
1: And that w- that's what it's like. July twenty-sixth. Yeah, one the July twenty-sixth of, of barracks. Yeah. Okay. All right. So
0: you know, and and he it was really a disaster. Mm-hmm. And and then Batista cracked down hard on Cuban society, and I I mean ugly shit like torture and killing people in the streets, and you mostly young Cuban young people, uh, young Cubans, and, and and that made Castro wildly popular. But he was in prison, and so then he the Archbishop uh, of Cuba, the Cuban Archbishop, I believe, well some uh, member of the Catholic Church, high up, basically convinced Batista to let Castro go, but then they sent him in exile the Mexico City, where he met. Guevara, and he trained as a guerrilla to reinvade the country, and that's how that all started, mm-hmm. yeah, so I mean, I think that, you know, Cuba, you know, F- Fidel Castro was really a nationalist, is I guess my point, mm-hmm. his connections to, to Marxism were not
1: really existent, if mm-hmm. you know his history, so, yeah, if I remember correctly, and you, you can tell me if I'm wrong said, I'm not a communist. And then when America was like, fuck off, and he needed a daddy and went to Russia, that's when he started talking a little bit more about... Like, but important
0: you know, to understand that Russia wasn't communist. I mean, you know, Russia wasn't a true. socialist society true. either, right? Very true. That, that yeah. was a Stalinist organization, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So he, he sided with the Stalinist uh, kind of... See, it's been, a, it's been a horrible tragedy historically that the people that are associated with Marxism are, are Fidel Castro, Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin, Ho Chi Minh, and Pol Pot. And none None of of it's (laughs) Marxism.
1: And none of it's Marx,
0: right? And people just don't know it, you know? And that's really Lenin's point in what is to be done. Mm -hmm. He's saying, like, the party is essentially, if people don't know this, like, Marxism isn't this big, scary thing. It's basically like, we create a political party that's an educational institution for workers, where we have intellectuals, socialist intellectuals, teach working-class people about uh, Marxism, because they don't get educated on these issues in in their schools or Mm -hmm. in their daily lives. So they need a kind of, enlightened intelligentsia to, to, to bring Marxism to them and, and do the actual hard work of teaching them and building a and party building, which is what no one wants to do, which is why they're attracted to Che Guevara and the guns and running into the mountains mm-hmm. and shooting people. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because that's easy, mm-hmm. relatively speaking. You know what I
1: mean? mm-hmm. so. Yeah, so uh, one interesting thing, I think I might have told you about this. Um, someone um, compared uh, Vygotsky's theory on learning on how an individual has like this, what they call a zone of proximal development. it's okay. like, like if I know A, right, I might be able to get to B with the help of sure. interacting with others. And then when I'm at B, maybe I can get to C. But there's no way I could go from A to C. Right. Yeah, right, right. And so, uh, I'll shout out Wayne out. He he uh, in in a Marxist education did this chapter where he kind of you know was looking at Lenin quotes and the Picasso quotes and, and I mean I'm simplifying it, but sure. you know said that the way that Lenin conceived the learning of the class and uh, the revolution coming together as this, like, sociocultural interaction of, you know, a, a slightly more enlightened other with the personal experience of somebody else was actually, like, the way that Vagassi looked at individuals and how they learn And that people don't understand that Vagassi has a pretty... Uh, we don't like the word radical, but yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. people would call it that. Yeah, right. You know, political Latin. background. Yeah. You know, and uh, anyway, so... Um, so there's overlap
0: between his his like educational theories and what Lenin was writing and what should be done.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, it makes uh, sense. I mean, if you think it depends what you think human consciousness is. You see what I mean? How uh-oh. people learn in the yeah. Well, so the Marxist <laughs> believes being determines consciousness. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So if you're never exposed to anything of uh, these ideas, yeah, yeah. or the ones that you are exposed to are filtered through bourgeois propaganda systems like the news (laughs) and the education and the education system, then of course you're going to come out the other side with bourgeois ideas about Marx. Right.
1: So what, what do you then say to the critique that like, well, since any, anybody who's, uh, who's tried it and claimed him, you know, it ended in all this, uh, death and murder. And that like us saying, well, that's not real communism. That's not real Marxism is like a cop out. Well, what I would say is, is to that is,
0: is, you know, the, the people that followed Rousseau and Locke killed people, too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I and mean, what, the bourgeoisie didn't commit atrocities in its history?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, clearly it did. <laughs> I mean, now, now, I would not, you know, like Maximilian Robespierre, mm-hmm. for instance. And, and people, we don't have this whole thing in the United States, but what, did they think the American Revolution was a Tea Party?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, like everything was fine and people didn't get hurt. And it was a war, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and that's unfortunate. Uh, but it's uh, a cop out that people. Uh, well, my question is is why is the burden of, of violence always on the left and never mm. on the right?
1: Mm. I was talking about this with my students. You know, we were talking about Nat Turner and John Brown and how they're critiqued for their use of violence in the pursuit of justice. You know, and I was discussing with them like like you said, the burden of proof. Like the violence of the system is never put on trial. Yeah, only the people resisting, or it. or even right. the system, the
0: bourgeoisie. Right. you know the the class, the, the you know that. I mean, and the Communist Manifesto itself is all about bourgeoisie taking power. If you read it, it's nothing about socialism in in the Communist Manifesto. It's all about how the bourgeoisie went to every extent it could to to eliminate the previous class that was causing it uh, social suffering or or, or or keeping it down, mm. the feudal monarch, monarchy and all that stuff at that time. So it, people just don't understand. Mm. You know, there's a there's a lack of education around it. And by the way, I'm not. You know, I myself am not for. Violent social change, but what I'm saying is, who
1: is the bourgeoisie to, to say anything about violence? Mm, yeah, for sure. So one thing I've been curious about is um, your your interest in seemingly disparate figures of Marx yeah, and sure. Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Yeah. Right. So where did Nietzsche come in the mix, and and how do you square that so, circle? So when I like late in
0: graduate school, when I was in in San Diego, uh, going to you know, I went to a terminal master's degree program, right? So I went to a two-year master's degree program,
1: which took me four because
0: I was a little distracted at that time uh, with other things, but um, politics being one of them. But anyway, I, I, I took a contemporary political theory class with this professor at San Diego State. He was a very bright guy, but he was really like a liberal, and I was in the depths of like being involved in Marxism at that time in the political party. Mm-hmm. And so I would go into the class and argue with him. And so he introduced me to Nietzsche's ideas, more Foucault's ideas. Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
0: And so contemporary, basically contemporary thought is everything without Marx. So it's like, they basically use Nietzsche to say that Marxism is irrelevant as a system of thought. Okay, and then they move on from Marx. And so contemporary, the way I look at contemporary with the word contemporary means is it means uh, thought without Marx. And uh, so anyway, so when I got out of school, I started reading Nietzsche. Uh, so I kind of, like, I was not educated, whereas Marxism, modern political theory, I was educated within an institutional dynamic. Mm-hmm. I studied Nietzsche on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it was because of of this guy, uh, this professor, who was actually Palestinian, interestingly mm-hmm. enough. He was a Palestinian professor at, at San Diego State, and a very brilliant guy. And uh, so I, I think that uh, Nietzsche poses a problem for what I would call Orthodox Marxism.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, you know, and so I think that he introduces relativity into the kind of conversation and it's very complicated. It's hard to explain, but Nietzsche was more of a psychologist and he introduces psychology more than like, so Nietzsche thinks that economics can't explain every little detail of every little aspect of human life, which Marx would basically, maybe I'm being unfair to Marx, but Marxism is kind of a system of thought based on the idea that Economic categories are really deterministic about how people see the world and mm-hmm. think, you know. And Nietzsche would say it's not that simple, which I I tend to be uh, agree with him about,
1: mm-hmm. you
0: know. Like cultural questions, like who does the does the Communist Party get to decide what's the better flavor of ice cream, chocolate or vanilla? <laughs> well, you know, chocolate of vanilla, you know, chocolate is is socially more useful than you see, and that's the kind of Stalinism. Right. So I think that Nietzsche can be effectively deployed against Stalinists within the context of socialist thought.
1: Yeah. So how did Nietzsche get um, co-opted and and, um, abused by the Nazis? By the Nazis, yeah. Well, there's an interesting book called
0: Hitler's Philosophers about how they did that—not just to Nietzsche, but to all German philosophers, Mm -hmm. including Hegel. Everyone except Marx. Again, see the the thing overhanging all this stuff is Marx isn't allowed in the conversation, Mm -hmm. which is important and maybe leads you to the correct conclusion about who's the, really the revolutionary thinker and all this stuff, mm,
1: right.
0: right? The guy who's not allowed to be talked about.
1: Mm.
0: Anyway, so, um, yeah, well, because, you know, Nietzsche does lend himself, you know, there's an interpretation of Nietzsche that lends itself to fascism. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. You know, he has to be associated with German fascism, uh, and all fascism, including today in the, in the, in the kind of contemporary, for lack of a better word, situation, you know, is that a lot of these right wing fascist pigs today, you know they they will they will use Nietzsche because Nietzsche has this whole theory about the weak and the strong, right? And it, but Nietzsche's whole thing is is like, you know, everything's subject to interpretation. So that's just one interpretation of his theory. You know, Marx. You know, Nietzsche. The value of Nietzsche for me is he's basically telling the world like stop being fundamentalists, right? Right. You know, don't be so fundamentalistic about about the way you see the world. And meanwhile, people interpret the Nazis interpret Nietzsche as a fundamentalist.
1: Hmm. So yeah. they
0: miss the entire point. But then again, you can use it that way. It's complicated. Nietzsche's a relativist. He doesn't think in in objective categories of truth. Like yeah. there isn't this thing called truth with a capital T in Nietzsche's mind. So modern. that's why he's like with the father of postmodernism. People, yeah, with The, grand- the grandfather.
1: Yeah. yeah,
0: and then and then Foucault's really a follower of Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. For the most important, you know, thinkers in uh, in the recent past, yeah. You know. Um, so, you know, and then the, the, you know, Nietzsche also lends itself to the left, like a lot of this gender identity and identity politics stuff going on on, his, uh, you know, Judith Butler, these people that uh, argue that are radical about, like, queer theory and all that So They were influenced by Nietzsche. They were influenced by by relativism,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know what I mean? So, like, the, he, can, he, can, he can cut either way. Sure.
1: You
0: know, mm-hmm. it just depends how you want to use it. So, what's important about Nietzsche to me is, is this is how I want to use it i mm. I look at thought as a weapon mm. in a certain sense, you know like I can use it to gain power and increase my own power, and that's the value of Nietzsche. Now, what do I want to do it for? Who do I want to do it for? who do I want to use my power to in power mm. right that's my choice that's no one
1: else's right on so you had mentioned being distracted, you had mentioned seven years of blur, so right around <laughs> the, so right around this time you are, um you know. This political. This, this when I was reading Nietzsche. Ironically. Yeah, education that you're you're getting and it's developing and. Also, well, I got
0: kicked out of a political party, like right after graduate school when I moved back from to from San Diego to to uh, to New Jersey. I got kicked out of this Trotskyist organization. So that's when I really started studying Nietzsche at that time. Uh, but yeah, so that's when my kind of, so sort of it was active easy to have a like chip me. on your shoulder. It was, was <laughs> easy. Yeah. Yeah, it was easy to have a chip on my shoulder. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so then, you know, I was just, you know, I was just boozing and drugging and doing all that kind of stuff, yeah. you know, at that time. And, uh, you know, I just basically kind of like warmed the bar stool for that, for those years, yeah. you know, uh, and, uh, that didn't work out so well. And, uh, you know, now I'm here. So, yeah.
1: What was the, what was the switch? What was the change?
0: Yeah. oh oh well, I had a you know a traumatic accident or whatever incident um from because of my drinking and my drug use where i uh you know I had a psychotic episode and um yeah you know, I walked off the roof of a building of a house I was living in, I climbed out the window and walked off the roof and uh, woke up in Claramos hospital like in pretty bad shape one morning and uh and then you know that was uh, the beginning of why I'm still here today and why I don't drink and use drugs anymore mm-hmm. so mm.
1: Mm-hmm. What do you think has been um, something about yourself that you've learned maybe from the process of uh, recovery and addiction?
0: Oh, I mean, I just think that, um, well, I, I think it. it's not something, what have I learned? I, don't know. I guess maybe there's, um, I guess that's a good question. I don't, I don't really know what I've learned. <laughs> don't drink and use drugs. That's basically yeah, what I've yeah. learned. <laughs> uh, no, I think that, uh, you know, to be teachable uh, is probably the best lesson I learned from my experience of, of things. And, and that my, my, my way is not always the best way. Um, you know, even though sometimes I still think that way, but, uh, you know, it's just like, I don't, I don't have all the answers, you know, yeah. as much as I thought I did, mm-hmm. you know, cause mm-hmm. I, I wound up in a really bad spot, you know, mm-hmm. left to my own devices. Like I don't make the best decisions. Yeah.
1: So it's gotta be hard for, um, I was, I was told early on in the process, like, you can't be too dumb for this recovery thing, but you can be too smart for it. Yeah. So it's got to be hard for somebody who's, you know, not going to blow smoke up your ass, but used to being the smartest dude in the room for the most part to have to think about humility and that sort of thing. Right.
0: Well, I mean, I, I I try to separate it out
1: from politics. Mm -hmm.
0: You know, it's interesting. I was at a meeting yesterday and they were bashing Bernie Sanders before the meeting. (laughs) And, and my thing with Bernie Sanders is it's hard for me to explain how I feel about Sanders and all this stuff. But what I don't like is when people hammer on Sanders is I take that as an attack on working people. You know, basically, I, I, and that's who I'll defend. More than I'll defend Sanders is I'll, I'll defend working people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so anyway, like the, the fact of the matter is, is that um, I try to separate out my recovery from my political thinking. The best I can, which is difficult. And I, I discussed this with you on New Year's, you know what I mean, uh, about the God question and how do we square all this stuff together. Yeah. And, and, and what I would say is that I believe in a higher power, but I wouldn't call it God. Mm-hmm. You know? And I certainly wouldn't call it the Judeo-Christian God. And that's what, that's what Nietzsche really did for me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He, do, he, he, he lends himself to this, like, listen, I've a higher power, and I just call it life.
1: Mm.
0: Or, or Marx would call it history. Mm. So what I would say, like in the big book of alcoholics, Anonymous, you know, in the chapter to the agnostic, which you hate, you know, and I understand. But what, what I, I I agree with you in a certain point. But what I take out of it that's positive from that chapter, I think, is when he says, like everyone has a higher power, whether they realize it or not. Okay. And maybe Marx would call his history. Okay. And that's fine. You know what I mean? But that's not the same thing as you know. But then the whole process of recovery gets. Tied up with the Judeo-Christian concept of, mm-hmm. of a deity, or, or what you often call Bill Wilson's God.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Which I, I I think is indistinguishable from the Judeo-Christian conception of it.
1: It's it's funny how tradition or orthodoxy in in a lot of recovery circles, um, like the 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 higher power that these folks believe in, like parking spot Jesus. Yeah, yeah you that's know? a great way of saying. Yeah, that, isn't yeah. even like. Really, the conception that was put forth in some of the literature, you know, it's it's different from that. But they think that's what it means. I don't know. But you know, that's well, it.
0: I think what's revolutionary about Bill Wilson's thinking actually was that he was a relativist. You know, the third step of Alcoholics Anonymous is a, is a subjective interpretation of a higher power. He was a relativist, mm. which separates him out from other forms of <laughs> other forms other spiritual systems like Catholicism and. And, and, and Islam and all that, which believe in the objective criteria for spirituality. But I guess back to the question of how do I square my sobriety with with my intellect? Is that the question? I, with I my guess, education? I, I guess yeah,
1: because you know they, they talk about oh retire from the debating society yeah, and this sure. sort of thing, and you know yeah. yeah. So like how, how do you, uh, how do you do that? I would say uh, uh,
0: some people need that to. Uh, I, I stay sober out of fear personally. Because what I went through and when I got hurt and before I came to AA was so traumatic, like that. The reality is, is that I can't go through that again. I don't want to go through that again. You know what I mean? And and uh, certainly it was a directly caused by drugs and alcohol. It wasn't any debate about that. And um, you know, I had a drug psychosis, and so you know, I, I can't put myself in that position. That I can't. I I wouldn't survive again. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do go through that again. Mm-hmm. I don't think. And. Uh, so, or something worse. So, you know, for me, like, there's a very, like, my sobriety is very, I try to make it pragmatic, but, like, mm. you know, it's like, I don't have a future at all. You know, I can't help anybody if I'm drunk,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know? And so, uh, in terms of what other people, I think there are stronger minded and weaker minded people. And I think that the weaker minded people maybe need that kind of thing to stay sober.
1: The more traditional conception of God. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. yeah, yeah. yeah I could buy that. I think I think And one, that's fine for them because that's what they need to do to survive. You know, and But it, it wouldn't work for me.
1: Right. It wouldn't work for me either. And one thing that 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 being in recovery has taught me is like like outside of recovery circles, I used to be a pretty obnoxious atheist. Yeah, you know. Like, yeah. And, and and if you put a, a gun to my head, I still think the idea of a god is absurd.
0: Sure, sure. Higher power, whatever you want, right? It. Yeah,
1: yeah. But at the same time, I'm less judgmental about it. Well, it's made you more tolerant. Because I've been through recovery and been like, listen, if that's keeping you from where you were at your bottom, fuck, go ahead, do it. You know? Yeah. You know, you're not starting wars over religion. No, 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 (laughs) no, they're not the worst people in the world. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. no, I think
0: patience and tolerance is the important part of of sobriety. And and which I think jives with any conception of social justice, too. You know what I mean? Whether they realize it or not. There's a lot of overlap between, as I see, like... um, you know, revolutionary thinking and twelve step recovery in many ways. You know, compassion and all that kind of stuff. The the moral values of, mm. of, of socialism. Kind of
1: yeah, way. and and putting um, putting others before self, or at least even yeah, to you know, not always you know pursuing self centeredness.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like and, and like you said, humility and all those good values. I mean, it's like it's great in theory. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> now, in practice, how that actually works is a different story. I mean, I, what I will say is my sponsor. In AA, who saved my life, who came to the hospital and convinced me to go to AA meetings and really saved my ass, is a big Trump supporter. Mm-hmm. So I have to deal with that too.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: You know, it's like, and I had to find a, a way to manage that relationship. In, I mean, I guess what I found in AA is that I don't know how to, I, I'm not great with relationships with other people. Mm. Uh, and particularly if you take alcohol and drugs away from me, then I'm even worse.
1: Yeah, You know what I mean? Is it, is it uh, an isolating thing or what, is it like a get angry quickly thing? When, it,
0: when you're drunk, it's easier to get along with people.
1: Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. You
0: know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I mean, it wasn't like I didn't have drunken arguments. I did that all the time. I have sober arguments all the time too. But like, now I, I say what I, what I do do is I do practice restraint more today mm. is what I was saying. Because that's what I was, the meeting that I led last night. It was about tolerance and uh, and and one of the readings was about self restraint, and I think that's what like you were saying about like being a kind of belligerent atheist. Mm-hmm. You know, which you know I think that AA kind of taught you and me. Like, you know, I, I didn't. Like, what I wanted to do with this woman that was arguing how Bernie Sanders was like the worst thing in the world. What I wanted to do was call her uh, a snuck up snob, a rich person who doesn't know what fucking real world life problems are for people, right? Yeah. And I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that because of what I
1: learned in uh, you know in AA. So. Mm. so it's been about three years now. Right? Yeah. Going off three and a half. Yeah. Okay. What do you think the process of going through the political education you did and then the um, recovery, how does that how does that affect Have they worked together for how you see the world today? How so?
0: So, I mean, again, like, I don't want to sound like a crazy person, but (laughs) I do think that, and maybe I already sound like a crazy person, but, you know, I think that, you know, Hegel, for for instance, the big influence on Marx was Hegel. And Hegel essentially believed that history was rational, Mm -hmm. that there was a reason for why things happened in historical development, right? And that we could, and that we as human beings could actually understand this process, and Marx comes from that school of dialectical thinking and, and all that ration, rationality and reason. And and so I think that when I look at my alcoholism, I think there's a, you know, am I and my drinking and the whole philosophy of AA versus the philosophy of modern world, of the modern world, whether it's whoever, you know, uh, Darwin or, or Marx or whoever. Uh, you know, I think that it it makes sense to me why I'm in the place that I'm in today based on my experiences and my education and stuff like that you know like i, I i'm a, I guess what it says what, what i what I mean to say is that I'm optimistic mm-hmm. you know and we have a lot of reasons to be pessimistic mm-hmm. uh, about things, and I'm still not you know and what like,
1: are our reasons to be optimistic
0: well, I mean, I think that the personally i, I think that I guess I'm, I make I'm more like I have more of a biological understanding of socialism, like <laughs> the necessity for socialism. Basically, like it doesn't seem to me that the species is going to survive much longer, um, uh, the way in which it decides to produce things.
1: Socialism um, or barbarism,
0: or or socialism or extinction. Right? Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, like, yeah, just, yeah. We can change it to, to yeah. that. I mean, that was Trotsky's quote on the eve of World War II. Change
1: your die.
0: Change or die, yeah. So there's that element. <laughs> Not of- that was Trotsky's quote, no, it's just that that's a recovery phrase. Yeah, that's a <laughs> recovery phrase. And there is a lot of overlap between those yeah. two things, you know what yeah. I
1: mean? Yeah. Alright, so right now we're in primary season. Oh good. Okay. Um how does your Optimism, yet fear of not fear, but um, yeah. knowledge that we may go extinct if we don't change. Yeah, how do you see this? Well, I think what's good about out.
0: I think what's good about Sanders is win, lose, or draw. He's raising the class question mm-hmm. one way or the other, publicly mm-hmm. in a way that's never been raised before. Mm-hmm. And I think that that. Um, That is good, healthy for society. Because people, and I think what it's also going to do, well, the darker side of it, is it's going to make people, it's going to force people, if he does get the nomination, uh, it's going to force, even if he doesn't, but I think he's going to, it's going to force people to take sides more clearly. Mm -hmm. So I think people are going to find out stuff about their neighbors and their family and their friends that um, they didn't know. (laughs) And they're not going to like a lot of it. And uh, and I think that that is a healthy process, actually, mm-hmm. you know, uh, even though like, I'm not a fan of, of violent social change, um, you know, I think that there is a process of where the truth needs to come out.
1: You sure. Know, yeah. you know, about people. Uh, are you
0: optimistic about his chances to win? I, I think that basically, like, speaking of gambling, we were talking about that before a little bit, um, it, basically for Sanders to reform American capitalism, he has to hit like an inside straight. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know what the, ch- the probability of that is low. Mm. So like, I just look at Sanders, like in order to reform American capitalism, a number of things have to happen and a number of things have to break right. And then there's a clock ticking on all this stuff too, because of climate change that these things have to be done rapidly and uh, like uh, over the next five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. And we don't have 30, 40, 50 years to, to, to change fundamentally our social relations and. And I think, which lends itself to really revolutionary theory. Mm-hmm. Let's say he wins the nomination. Okay. And then let's say he beats Trump. And let's say he gets into the White House. Then he's got to like, get his laws through Congress. And then, then if he gets them through Congress, he's got to deal with the courts mm-hmm. overturning those laws. Yeah. I mean, what are the, what's the probability that that's all going to happen within the next five to ten years?
1: Mm. It's good for the long term that he's posing the class question. But maybe the short-term
0: will change quickly, enough? I think he, he, he's posing a question that his movement can't solve. Okay. You see what I mean? Yeah. Because he's essentially hijacked the Democratic Party. He doesn't have his own party. And I take that stuff seriously, you know, with Lenin, And I, I saw an interview with Cornel West, and he was hammering on Lenin. you know. And I thought that that—and Cornel West is a big booster for Sanders. And uh, I thought that was an unfortunate thing. Mm-hmm. You know listen, Lenin and Trotsky did things in the course of the Russian Revolution, which were horrible.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: you know there's no doubt about it, but there was a context and, uh, and they were faced with certain problems, and it's easy for us to sit a hundred years later and judge them. you know It doesn't mean that a, a revolutionary movement today would face the same problems and, and, and solve it in the same way. Mm-hmm. you know I actually think it's unlikely because of uh, basically Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King jr. I think they changed the culture yep. of the left so much
1: Absolutely. that like it it, it it is in essence a nonviolent thing. I, I was just talking talking about this with my students. Okay. But again, when we were talking about Turner and Brown. I I said, listen, you know this this whole I didn't say fetishization, but yeah, you know, this whole like you know preference for nonviolence as a virtue really, you know, it was Gandhi and King. Like, you know, before that, people cracked eggs to make an omelet, you know? Yeah, but
0: what I I would say, and this is where Nietzsche lends itself... Yeah, well, by the way, violence on the left was widely accepted before that.
1: Yeah. You know, um,
0: all the the progressive movements in history were violent up to that point. You know, the French Revolution, the English Civil War, all that kind of stuff. And anyway, so, um, you know, what I think is that they changed the culture. Whereas I can't actually... If I if I'm a violent revolutionary, no one's going to listen to me in the contemporary
1: world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: That's a problem. So I
1: think that and uh, the nonviolent revolutionary actually has an edge. And I see that with with, uh, with my students over the years. You know, they'll say like, "Well, this is good in theory, and this is good in theory, and this is good in theory." But you know, when we're talking about communism stuff, yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. but it'll never happen because X, Y, and Z, or like that'd be great, but you'd have to completely reset the world. And I'm like. So why don't we reset it? Yeah. Well, well, we don't. But have then to, the same thing. Same thing with violence. It's like you know, oh, it may do this it may do that, but it's you know not the right way to go about doing it. It's like com- they've been completely programmed but it's like off the menu. Now that could change. Yeah. Now if Sanders comes in and there's a violent wa- uh, removal of him
0: from power, they could change their 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 beliefs on violence. But um, yeah. I think that would be unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that it's it's do not I don't I don't think history spit out nonviolence on the left by accident. What do from, you mean by that? Well, I, I think there's an organic reason for these things happening. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, and uh, and I think that's good. You know, and I think it lends itself. Like I, you know, I showed you that thing that Marx wrote about nonviolent revolution in in the United States mm-hmm. back in. So, listen, I think that um, it is a, it is a. For me, I would agree with the 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 point of um, the the fear of Marxism. Whereas Marxism can become a like listen, socialism is so important that anything in order to get to that. That goal is, is acceptable. And I don't think that that's a, a healthy argument at all. Okay. And I think that's kind of dangerous. You know, no, no matter how many bodies we have to stack, socialism is so important. The goal of historical development is so important. It doesn't matter how we get there, you know. So
1: we've, we've checked off our Marx box. All right. We've checked off our Nietzsche box. Sure, sure, sure. Two Chewbac- box. Oh, I haven't talked about Tupac Shakur. Tupac well,
0: Tupac Shakur, um, actually, when I heard the song Changes, um, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was never into um, rap music, hip-hop, and uh, and actually, I was like one of these people that would be like, oh, hip-hop's not really music, and all that type of stuff, but then I heard uh, Changes by Tupac Shakur, and that mm-hmm. kind of changed my way of seeing it, and uh, and I really started getting into hip-hop, and then I went to college, and one of my oldest friends, one of my close friends from college, the only guy I really still talk to from then... Uh, he was a huge, a big, like whitest kid you'll ever see in your life, but like he was uh, the biggest Tupac Shakur fan you'll ever meet, and he really introduced me to like gave me his albums, and that's when I really got into that. and, and I just admire Tupac Shakur for many reasons. I think he's an artistic genius, personally. I think he's arguably the greatest artist of the late twentieth century in any in any um,
1: medium, mm-hmm.
0: and I think you can make a case for him in that sense. And
1: uh, what about him speaks to you? Well,
0: he's got that conflict in him of like here's this this guy who believes in social change and social justice, and he's got these revolutionary ideas, but then he's got this, like, thug, gang-banging thing going on, too, and mm-hmm. he was, like, a product, and he's mm-hmm. conflicted. His life was a conflict between these two personas or parts of his identity, mm-hmm. and it ultimately killed him.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, the, the, the lower, his lower power, let's say, versus his higher power, the lower power won out and ultimately killed him. Uh, but you know, and, and just the way he owned everybody, you know, the way he dominated his, uh, his area of expertise, hip hop, to the, the extent, like, to me, like, Tupac Shakur is the alpha and the omega of hip hop and rap, you know, like, there is no one that can ever touch, that touches him yet, you know, so.
1: So not to get you on the couch. Oh, okay. But, um.
0: so I, I don't have to lay down. <laughs>
1: what, uh, are there... Are there two Rories that were in conflict at the time when you came across his music, or higher power, oh, power or lower power, or? Oh, uh, maybe I never even thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I just think that conflict
0: is is um, drives things, mm-hmm. you know. And I, well, I think uh, to psychoanalyze myself, like I come from an upper middle class background, yeah. And and actually, in my family life, you know, my mother was very like uh, materialistic and not in the Marxist sense of the word, sure, yeah. in the Madonna sense of the word. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, and I always thought that that was kind of, it always kind of disgusted me. So to put myself on the couch, you know, I, I could say that, you know, um, maybe there's some guilt about you know, my class, uh, background.
1: Mm, interesting. Yeah. Uh, that comes up, We're, we're, we're doing a unit on class right now in, in one of the classes I teach. And one of the things I opened up with was, you know, why are we not comfortable talking about class? compared to the way we talk about race and sexuality and gender identity right. and those sorts of things, you know? You know why? Just class
0: is deterministic. Because <laughs> <laughs> those other things don't threaten the society yeah. in the way that class does. Yeah. Class fundamentally threatens the society, which is why ultimately, like, I fall... Uh, again, uh, my question with all this stuff with people that are into the identity politics stuff, my question is, is what class is the best vehicle through which... You can accomplish your goals of liberating people sexually and, and, and uh, gender wise and, and whatever. Mm-hmm. Is the bourgeoisie the class that's going to get you there?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or is the working class the class mm-hmm. that's going to get you there? Another
1: thing that, that I think comes up when I think about it or when I'm trying to explain things to people is, um, you know, and again, it's so complicated, you know, the, yeah. how things intersect and how capitalism feeds racism and vice versa and all yeah, that yeah. sort of thing. But like, where are the numbers for the revolution? Are the numbers in Oh, you're talking about, like, pragmatically? Yeah, the numbers in the, you know, trans sector, the black sector, is only 12% of the population, or if we unite as a working class, that's the one that can overthrow things. And so I think that
0: a lot of these things are bourgeois ideas in the sense that they divide the working class. Mm-hmm. Now, in the, uh, I mean, like, in the sense of, like, a Charles Sandberg lean-in sure. feminism, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton feminism, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. a uh, uh, Henry Louis Gates... Uh, Racial kind mm-hmm, of thing, you know, mm-hmm. a bourgeois interpretation of these things, essentially. Yeah,
1: so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember one of the times that we were sitting down a, a while back, trying to get one of the reading groups together. You know, that's, I think that's one of the things that you, that you talked about was, you know, there's 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 a bourgeois identity politics, and then there's sort of maybe perhaps useful identity politics.
0: Yeah, a proletarian one. Yeah. yeah, and I think that. So, for instance, if if you look at the Russian Revolution in 1917, before Stalin came and destroyed it, um, you know, they they had, women could vote. Then women could vote in the Soviet Russia before they could vote in the United States. Mm. People don't know that. What's, what's that uh, in terms of gender uh, progress? And, mm. and then uh, abortion. You know, women in the Soviet Union could have abortions. That, that, and that didn't happen in the United States till what, 1973, Roe versus Wade, yeah. 1974? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it was wild. The Russian Revolution, in the first 10 years of it, was wildly more progressive than anything anyone had seen uh, in history. Mm. So, and and they we're still catching up in many ways to their ideas. And uh, so I think that the, uh, an actual, the most useful thing I think a person can do is study the early part of the Russian Revolution.
1: Back to Tupac for a second. Yeah. yeah. About a year ago when I was putting this whole podcast thing together and I was having people choose songs, you were going to choose Ambitions of a Writer. As a writer, yeah. As, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, what what would have made you choose that song? Why does that song speak to you? Uh, I just think it's awesome, you know, and I think it's just like he—it's just, just his best song, in my opinion,
0: mm. to, like start to finish, you know. <laughs> and it's basically the whole point of the song is like I'm I I I am the power here, you know what I mean? Like I am the best rapper in the world, and I'm gonna just shit on everybody and everything that gets in my way, you know what I mean? And in the Nietzschean sense of the Ubermensch. Mm. Like, of the way the, the way that, that word, I think, is meant to be used, not for Hitler <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or Trump. So, yeah, I just think, like, he really lays waste to everything, and he just, like, states his kind of... And that's what I like about hip-hop. I like that, and that's what I like about Tupac, is that I like that arrogance that they yeah. have. You know what I mean? I, I like that kind of... People say that maybe it's a turn-off to them, um, mm. but I love it. And I think it's like, listen, I was poor, uh, I came from nothing, and here
1: I am, mm. and fuck you, mm-hmm. you know? Right on. Anything that we've left uh, unsaid? No. I think we're good. Okay. Do you want to talk about your movie? Oh, uh, stuff?
0: no. I can mean, talk. About, like I, sh- we shot a short film. And I'm in the process of editing it, and it's about a restaurant. And it's called Back at House, and uh, so yeah. I mean, it's you know we're, we'll see when it gets done, but uh,
1: yeah. So what 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 drew you to filmmaking?
0: Um. Well, my friend. Uh, to shut up a friend of mine, actually. <laughs> You know what I mean? I just got tired of hearing a friend of mine talk about how he wants to make a film. So I said, like, fuck it, let's do it. Mm. He was like, okay. So we got a location. And, and actually, well, like at the later, I had this idea at the later part of my drinking and drug use. I used to have this friend who was a bartender um, at a place I hung out at. And we lived together. And he had this idea, so I kind of stole it from him for a TV show about waiters. Um, and, uh, and people would say like, oh, whenever I tell people this idea, they're like, oh, it's kind of like waiting, you know, the movie waiting with Ryan Reynolds, a couple of like 12, 15 years ago. Anyway, I was like, well, yeah, but they weren't doing coke in the bathroom and waiting, you know what I mean? And, and we were at Applebee's, so, uh, or at least I was, and, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so it's kind of like they had this idea for a, a kind of dark comedy about a restaurant. Yeah.
1: And that's sort of blended with uh, his ideas and. Yeah,
0: well, so my friend, uh, his name's Anthony. He always, he owned a restaurant uh, for a very long time, like thirty years, and he's recently retired. And in retirement, he is he's always been ambitious to get into the arts and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the first time I met him, we like talked about this, and, and uh, we had this whole conversation. And so, you know, we wrote a little script, and we we have I have a friend who's got filming equipment, and we just got together and did it, you know. So
1: all right, well, uh, may your may your opus. Be uh, be successful. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Certainly, because that's certainly things I admire. People who do creative stuff because I myself feel so uncreative. With I do uh, too. Actually, so it's really stepping outside my comfort zone to, to even think about stuff like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I have a job now, which uh, where I work for the creative department of a okay. travel agency. Okay. So it's like it's it's also helping me use the tool that I should use at work. Yeah, I don't really understand how to use. You know? Oh, oh, so like it has a double software, uh, Adobe Premiere Pro. It's oh, it's yeah, film editing mm-hmm. software and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm learning that. So it has like a double kind of uh, usefulness. Yeah.
1: All right. So, Marx, Nietzsche, yeah. Tupac, and uh, films and, and filmmakers. Yeah, and yeah. Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I really want to. Uh, we're we're getting to the point where I like to cut off for a little over an hour now. So. Cool. Um, you know, I really appreciate you doing this. I've been, we've been trying to get this together for a little while. And, and uh, you, you know, what better way to end Black History Month and transfer to Women's History Month with two white dudes talking about <laughs> Marx? <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> All right. Okay, so that was my conversation with my friend Rory. Again, sorry the audio wasn't up to par. Uh, Hopefully I'll remember to do everything right next time. Go to briantalkstohumans.net for more information, including show notes and links to a lot of the stuff that we were talking about in the episode. If you go to that website and click on Contact, you'll see a button to take you to Patreon to donate to the cause. I'm still going to leave that open, the monthly fees for the RSSS feed and the website, you know, I could use some help with. Uh, feel free to donate you can join for as little as a dollar okay thanks for listening that's all i got stay human